Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am thrilled to welcome Rachel Housel-Hall to the podcast today. Rachel is the critically acclaimed author of the Amazon Charts bestseller, These Toxic Things, and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize nominated, and now she's gone, which was also nominated for the Lefty, Barry, Seamus, and Anthony Awards. She's also author of the Audible Originals bestseller, How It Ends. Rachel is a New York Times bestselling author of The Good Sister with James Patterson. She's received nominations and acclaim for They All Fall Down, an homage to Agatha Christie's And Then There Were None, and for Land of Shadows, Skies of Ash, Trails of Echoes, and City of Saviors in the Detective Eloise Norton series. Rachel is a former member of the Board of Directors for Mystery Writers of America and has been a featured writer on NPR's acclaimed Crime in the City series and the National Endowment for the Arts weekly podcast. She's also served as a mentor in Pitch Wars and the Association of Writers Programs. Rachel lives in Los Angeles with her husband and daughter. For more information, visit www.rachelhousel.com. Rachel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. This is like my first event of 2022, so I'm glad it could be with the sisters and with you. Oh, well, I'm really looking forward to talking about uh, writing with you because you've had such an interesting career, and we're going to talk about the publishing journey, but I want to start where I always start in this podcast and talk about your writing journey and how it started. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel. I wanted, I, I think I said that um, in between those times where I wanted to be a nun and I wanted to be in the Marines and I wanted to be an advertising executive. <laughs> so it's always kind of bubbled back there. Um, I loved words yeah. from the very beginning. So, you know, I, I delved into books. I was a bookworm, like all of us who are um, sisters in crime. We all love books, right? And I never really thought of myself being able to do that. Um, I grew up reading Stephen King and Jackie Collins and Sidney Sheldon and all these incredible writers. But, you know, back then, at, at least for, you know, a young black uh, teenage girl in Los Angeles, there were there was no black Stephen King, you know, or Jackie Collins. And it wasn't until uh, I started working my first job at Penn Center USA West, um, which is an extension of Penn Penn Center, that I saw, one, working writers, just regular people who wrote. That's where I met Gary Phillips. That's where I met B.B. Moore Campbell and Jervie Turvalon and all these like really talented but everyday hardworking people. Um, and that's where I started thinking, huh, this isn't like, you know, I went to school to get an English American literature major. And again, it was a case of all these people up in the realms, Faulkner and Hemingway, and you never 
see yourself in those ranks. And so when I say, oh, Mm -hmm. I want to be a writer, I didn't think of it as something tangible. But being an employee Mm -hmm. with Penn turned that all around. And that's when I first said, yeah, I really do want to write a novel. Um, And Terry McMillan came out with Waiting to Excel. And Walter Mosley came Mm -hmm. out with Devil in a Blue Dress. And I saw that, yeah, it was actually possible to do this and to write uh, books with contemporary Black characters in a city like Los Angeles. It didn't have to be novel, all capital letters, and, you know, this esteemed faraway thing that only certain well-read, important erudite types would, you know, would take a part of. I saw that I could just write a story that, that really touched my heart and that I wanted to share with others. So, yeah, it was my very first real job that I said, yeah, I want to do that. And that moment when when other there are other authors that you can point to, which is such an important moment uh, for for people to to see themselves and make sure that it's possible, which is why it's so important that people can see themselves. Yeah. Um, so when you said, "I want to do this," did you start taking classes? Did you, if you were an English lit major, then you already loved the novel and understood structure Mm -hmm. likely. Um, But how did you sort of start on your writing career? I tried to figure out what it was that I actually wanted to write. And back then I felt that it had to be an important story, capital I, capital S. And that's when you kind of look to others and say, well, it has to be this. It has to be that. It has to be the second coming of Toni Morrison and Alice Walker tied up. And so you start trying out different people's voices and writing these seemingly very, very important stories. And that's like everybody else, you know, reading Granta. Remember Granta magazine? I'd read those short stories and it's like, oh, my book has to be like this. And none of it really resonated with me. Um, And that is until I started reading the contemporary writers in my life. And it's like, oh, so I really can tell this story and it's going to be okay. And it's like, yeah, you can. And so I started looking around um, my own world to see what really struck me, what was bothering me, what um, did I want to spend time talking about and delving into. And I was raised Seventh-day Adventist. And so religion was a very important thing for me. Um, and it was also one of those, you know, religion, especially for a bookworm, for a, a person who pays a lot of attention and who is highly outraged with with hypocritical behavior. You know, I wanted to say something against that. Um, at the same time in my work life, my boss was going through a hard time with her oldest son who had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And she was this, you know, very put together, Talbot's wearing, you know, listen to Phantom of the Opera uh, soundtrack in her office and had all these lovely things going through this really, really nasty back and forth with social services and a son who was on medications and he disappeared and how all her ordered world was being wrecked constantly by mental illness. And that really struck me. And I grew up in a church where 
there is no such thing as mental illness. It's like if there was something wrong with you, it's because you were, you know, possessed in some sense. Um, psychological treatment that, no, you prayed that away. So I wanted to talk about how this family, and I made it a Black family in Los Angeles, was dealing with mental health while also um, struggling with how that was perceived in their community. And that became uh, my mm-hmm. very first book, A Quiet Storm. Um, and, and that was published you know, way, way back in 2001. But that was my first time you know, moving away from what I thought needed, uh, what should be written about, you know, big, important ideas and saying, you know, I don't want to write it like that. I still want to talk about important ideas, but I also want it to be in something that's accessible, something that I'd enjoy reading. And and I've been on that path ever since. There's so much I could talk to you about with that because those very important <laughs> stories and those big um, authors can dissuade a lot of people from from writing um, and until they find their path or their journey. Why for you crime fiction? Was it something that you'd read? Something you had, you you know? What about it gave you that your voice? Part of it was my background growing up. Um, I live and still live in the Crenshaw area of Los Angeles. It's historically a, a black neighborhood, uh, this part of LA. And as as a result of economics and growth and gentrification and poverty and all the rest of it, I grew up with hearing lots of police sirens and helicopters and fights and gunshots. And I, as of, you know, the bookworm kid could never understand why people did what they did to each other. Why, especially my culture, we are very, you know, churchified in some ways and we're plagued with, you know, bad things. Why is that? Uh, Why, what is racism and how is that affecting someone like me? You know, I'm just trying to go to school and I'm scared of going to hell. And so, you know, crime was always a was always there. People in the apartments beneath me would shoot at each other all the time. And here my family was just trying to to make it, but somehow we were all kind of clumped together as criminals, all of us. And so that idea resonated with me. And I wanted to tell the story of people like my family who were just trying to exist and seen as bad, even though it was all about money. We couldn't afford to go anywhere else. Um, So it was that. And also, I have a tendency to think that life is one big crime novel. I mean, it may not necessarily be murder in your life every day, but there's some type of wrong happening to you in some ways. Um, from, From being ripped off by gas prices to being ripped off from porch, uh, what are they called? Porch pirates stealing your crap off the off the porch yeah. to, you know, someone opening up your greeting cards that come to you in the mail and taking out gift cards to domestic abuse. To I mean, it's everywhere, and I think that crime fiction and crime TV, all of it. Uh, is so successful and so enduring because it affects everyone. And 
Mm-hmm. I want that type of audience and I want that type of sway. It seems like any genre can be crime fiction. Hell, I think in some ways the Bible is a crime fiction novel. I mean, there's a lot of killing and there's a mm-hmm. lot of adultery and all the things that make up a great crime novel. It's all right there in both the Old and New Testaments. Um, so, yeah, I think crime endures. Crime brings everyone in. It's a big tent genre. Um you could tell any kind of story in crime fiction. And community-wise, I think it's the most friendly and supportive genre of writers, a uh, group of writers that I've ever encountered. So we're going to get to tell a lot of stories in this genre. Um, fortunately and unfortunately, crime will always be with us. So 20 years since you were first published which is yeah. amazing. I mean, 20 years ago feels like a blip to me, but it's <laughs> it's an amazing thing. Um, <laughs> tell me, you know, tell me about your writing journey, getting to that first publication. Had you, uh, you know, was it your first novel? Had you put other, you know, had you taken workshops? Tell me how you, how you got published that first time. Um, yeah, so this was you know, before the internet really was a thing. This is when, if you had an email account, it was like Netscape or Earthlink or AOL. (laughs) And this was also the same time where you get that hard copy, the physical agents, children's authors, whatever that book was. You remember that big book and it was basically every... Literary agents and, yeah. And so after I drafted my very... Uh, my draft of A Quiet Storm. And, you know, I did that on my own. I did a few uh, writing seminar type things, but I'm not much of a a, a joiner when it comes to like lots of uh, day-to-day writing groups. I kind of like Sisters in Crime because it's big and, you know, I can be left alone when I feel like being left alone. I don't owe anyone, you know, to read their chapters or anything like that. That's, that's, that's how I roll. Uh, And I didn't like it, you know, especially in Los Angeles where, you know, it's a very competitive city when it comes to creative and people would just say random things just to critique your work. And I hated that. Um, So I decided to just write this story without any input from anyone except my husband, even back then. And I sent out the query letters snail mail. Um, I sent out a few on this new thing called email. And that's how I landed my first agent, Wendy Sherman. She uh, emailed me. It was so bizarre. I remember the day because I was at a funeral for my grandfather-in-law. And I got this this email saying, I'd like to read the first 50 pages of your story. And then, you know, the next bunch of pages. And then I had to send the entire manuscript in via snail mail. And so, you know, you get that the manuscript box and all those old-fashioned things, and you sent it off to New York. And uh, she eventually sold it, and I was with a big five. I landed a a contract with Scribner and it was, you know, what more could I ask for except that my publishing date was on the first anniversary of 9-11, which, you know, Mm -hmm. really sucked because here I am, a debut author, 
telling a story about a Black family in Los Angeles dealing with mental illness on the first anniversary of 9-11. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's kind yeah. of a hard sell when it comes to promotion because everyone wants to, you know, all the bookstores are talking to authors who's, who have written, you know, 9-11 type stories. Um, this was also a time where publishers had an idea of what they considered to be Black writing. And so after A Quiet Storm, which did okay, I don't think I've earned out yet for that book, believe it or not, um, I couldn't land a second deal. Because this idea that all Black literature should be or sound like uh, Sister Soldier, who came out with her book back then, and this kind of urban East Coast, um, hard scrabble Black voice. That's what they consider Black literature. Mm-hmm. And, and I've said this before. I have letters from publishers and editors. And, you know, I, I broke up with my agent, Wendy, who was wonderful, but she couldn't sell um, my story. But, you know, I have letters saying that my voice wasn't Black enough, which was highly upsetting to me because I've been nothing but Black all my life, right? Um, and to hear, right. you know, white folks tell me that I don't sound Black enough or that my experience isn't urban enough, again, highly upsetting. Uh, so there was no second book um, for a very, very, very long time. I, you know, in this time, I continued living. I still worked my full-time job. Um, I uh, had my first child. I went through cancer treatment because my first child helped bring about, uh, helped doctors see a a lump that was there, but, you know, hadn't really been fully realized because I was only 33. Um, And I kept writing. I kept writing and kept turning out stories and, and reading books that I loved and wanted to, um, you know, write stories just like that. And around this time, around 2010 or so, Amazon came out with the Kindle platform where you could self-publish your own stuff. And I self-published a novel that had come close to being uh, finding an agent. And that was A View From Here. And I love the story. But, you know, it hadn't found a home. And I uploaded that onto the Kindle platform and kept writing. And another story that I wrote came very, very close again, but nobody wanted it. And I uploaded that to uh, as a self-published novel. And both novels and both of those exercises in self-publishing my work and having to do the marketing and... Um, looking at other books and coming closer and closer and closer to writing procedurals, you know, that helped me, that helped build the foundation for Land of Shadows, which was um, the first in a Lou Norton series. And also, you know, I had a partial mastectomy with my, with my first child. I, I was six months pregnant and already dealing, you know, being a cancer survivor, and then it came back mm. three years later. And so here I am, a young mom, trying to be a writer, and cancer kind of helped clarify my desire because I mm. was put on um, tamoxifen, which is a chemotherapy, for five years, and I had to enroll in UCLA's high-risk um, 
cancer program. And that kind of clarifies some things for you. It's, it made me say, well, mm-hmm. what is it that I want to do uh, before I die? Because my mortality, you know, I'm questioning it every day. Every, every time I take, you know, a pill, it makes me think about, you know, what if this doesn't work? And so yeah. that whole what do I want to do before I die uh, question helped say helped me come to realization that I wanted to write a Terry McMillan story mixed with a Walter Mosley story. I wanted to really get into crime fiction, and that's when I started writing um, Land of Shadows. And in some ways, that was my very first book because it had been between my, my Quiet Storm had been published in two thousand two, and Land of Shadows was published in 2014. So that's a very long time, a very, very long time. And mm-hmm. so I relaunched myself and I've been in crime fiction ever since. And I've been exploring different ways of telling crime stories since 2014. What an amazing story um, and, and the clarification for you of I'm a writer and I'm, I'm going to write my stories. Um, in, in those moments, plus just the demands of life. I mean, you know, going through an illness, but having a small child is also a lot to add to a a writing plate. So, um, and that gap in between as you were exploring and you're finding your voice and you're finding the stories and publishing start is starting to change a bit so that it's mm-hmm. understanding more that there are different voices that it's not mm-hmm. one voice who's the black voice or one voice who's the mm-hmm. whatever voice it's it there are many stories and many voices um do you feel like that that just the time changing also helped you you sort of led the movement in this in so many ways because you know you're earlier uh, an earlier yeah success story than that others. I mean, it's been the last, I'd say, five years that Own Voices has really become something um, in the publishing world that they can't dismiss. Um, But was what the writing, you know, as you're doing this, what it's a hard business and it's a hard craft. Yeah. What kept you going um, to, to, to tell these stories. I mean, was it this series character that all of a sudden showed up and was like, I'm on this ride with you? Or was it just the, the struggle or, or tell me, you know, what kept you yeah, going? It was, a, it was a mix of things. One, it was my belief that um, my part of Los Angeles was just as important as Michael Connolly's part of Los Angeles, that, there were complicated people here in the Crenshaw district of Los Angeles uh, that, and, and I was tired of other people telling the story of my Los Angeles. And I wanted to, I, I'm, I'm stubborn and angry enough to, to say, well, I'm, I'm going to do it and you can join me in the car or not. So it was, it was that kind of like uh, loyalty to this part of, uh, of LA. Um, it was also, you know, a publisher and an agent who believed in what I had to say. Um, there had been that long stretch of time when there were no agents who were interested in my voice. Um, but Jill Marshall, she loved it and she got it and she connected with it. And then when she 
um, went out with Land of Shadows, you know, there were some agents, uh, there's some editors there who were like, well, this is nothing special. And it's like, yeah, it is, because how many black LAPD homicide detective stories are you yeah. publishing right now? None. So, yeah, it is special. Um, but we found the right publisher. We found, you know, Forge and Kristen Sevick at Forge who loved um, Lou and connected with the story and connected with the L.A. part of um, the story that I wanted to tell. And it, you know, in, in many ways that was brave of them to do. And I think because of them, other publishers were like, well, there has to be other stories like this out there. And right. they started, you know, when one does it, the other wants to try. And soon everybody's trying. And now here we are. There, you know, we still have some some ways to gain, but yeah. we're closer than ever before. I mean, one day when we get to see each other in person again, you know, I won't be the only black person in the whole freaking convention center or the hotel. And that's a wonderful right. thing because right. I remember back when BoucherCon was in Long Beach in 2014 or 15, and it was me and mm -hmm. Gary Phillips, and that was it. And I remember going back to my hotel room and crying because it was exhausting, and it was just it, that that's that was just crazy. Here I am in one of the diverse cities, the most diverse city in the world, and there are only two of us, and that's changed a lot. And um, fortunately, you know, organizations like Sisters in Crime help kind of lead that charge, you know, making sure to include and to um, uh, seek out talent from all types of people, including Black people. Well, in, in the more recent um, times, Crime Writers of Color has become yes. a, a force and a, uh, a way to build a community um, for crime writers of color so that, uh, you know, uh, it's an amazing organization yeah, I, with promotion and yeah. support and everyone should be following them on social media and learning. Please, and, crimewritersofcolor.com. Yeah. Because I remember when it was, uh, we first started it, there were, you know, 12 of us yeah. or so and now i think we're up to like hundreds of yeah. people now i don't even I, I i saw i think 500 or something like that but it's a great amount it's in it's really impressive yeah. and i'm so thrilled that Gigi kelly and walter you know struck out to get a group of of of, of people together to just have that type of fellowship and safe place to talk about what it is to be a crime writer of yeah. color. And we have seen changes and will continue to, but we all need to keep our eye on things to make sure that we don't slide backwards or that yeah. people don't, you know, well, that didn't exactly. sell so well. So, you know, it's like we, we you know, this is a con it, as yeah. was when Sisters of Crime started. The reason Sisters in Crime started was advocating for women in crime writing. We, it doesn't. Yep. It's gotten better, but it's still not great. So <laughs> right. we we need right. to exactly. um, we need to keep talking about this, and it's really important. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah. you know, the work is it's wonderful to read diverse voices and to have a lot of stories and to to learn right. about things that aren't in your in your experience. I mean, that's what reading is anyway. Right. So it's it's. A, I mean, that's and that's what we do in our regular lives. I mean, who would want to go to a food court and there's only like 
Auntie Anne's pretzels and Panda Express. No, you want all the types of food. That's why we love buffets because every food is equal and as delicious as the other. So I want that in my food court and in my Vegas casino. And I want that on my, you know, my nightstand and in my library. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you've got, you know, you've written series, you've written standalones. I, I, I just, out of curiosity, can you tell me a little bit about your process um, for writing? Do you, how do the ideas come to you? Are they, you know, do they sit with you yeah. for a while or do all of a sudden, you know, you find, and I know for series and standalones, it's different. So I just, I'd love for you to tell folks how you, how you work. Um, I like I I am an avid reader of everything. I'm a news junkie. Uh, I like stories. I am fascinated with some things. And I like stories that have something to say. Uh, I usually tell stories that revolve around something that bothers Mm me, um, that I want to see fixed, that I'm scared of, that I'm triggered by. Because writing, for me, is my therapy. And... Uh, ideas kind of just sit with me until I figure out how to write them. Um, The best way of showing that is my second novel was called The Flight of Venus. And it was a woman, about a woman who was in an abusive relationship, an abusive marriage, and she tried to escape that. Um, Flight of Venus was a, a magic trick that Harry Houdini used to do. It was his disappearing woman trick. And when I wrote that story a long time ago as my second novel, you know, it didn't sell. But domestic abuse was has always been an idea, uh, has always been something that bothers me. Because as a child of the church, you know, hearing you're always supposed to, there's no divorce, you're always supposed to be with your husband, I couldn't understand how that was when someone's beating you. And it bothered me. Even as a child, it bothered me and bothered me and bothered me. And so, you know, here I was trying to write a novel about abuse. Well, it didn't sell because I didn't know how to really tell that story. But it stayed with me and stayed with me. It was like, you know, a a poppy seed caught in the back of your tooth kind of ideas. Like, I want to tell the story. I just don't know how yet. And I started, you know, I wrote... Um, my procedurals, the Lou Norton series. And then I wrote They All Fall Down, which was my very first traditionally published standalone. And that's how I figured out how to tell the story. Um, And it became, and now she's gone. I had learned how to write the procedural, which was the initial story for Now She's Gone, with Grayson Sykes being a PI. And she was a PI who was charged with finding a woman who wanted to stay missing because she was in an abusive relationship. And that's how I learned how to tell that story I wanted to tell, you know, 15 years ago. And so my process is basically chew on the story, chew on the story, write it. If it fails, trunk it and keep thinking about it until you finally kind of figure it out. And sometimes it takes, you know, a month, sometimes it takes 15 years. Um, But, they always are, they're ideas that, um, that, yeah, that I'm excited about. And when I say excited, it's not necessarily gleeful, but, uh, eager, eager to tell a story around, you know, 
this specific thing. And sometimes it works and sometimes it becomes, you know, a book that's nominated for an LA Times book prize. So yeah, that's, that's basically, it's really simple. Um, I've noticed since the pandemic and uh, my, cause I still work a full-time job and I'd commute. I commute to work and then I take my daughter to soccer practice or whatever she has to do. And we just tool around the city. And so I spent a lot of time in my car. And while I'm doing that, that's when I do a lot of thinking about what a story could be. You know, that's where I listen to podcasts and true crime. And it's like, oh, that would be interesting. Oh, that's how they told that story. So it's a lot of thinking about, you know, sin. (laughs) And ways to make it a, a story. And so when the pandemic started, it was it's it's been very difficult for me to imagineer like I used to because I don't have that kind of liminal liminal space between home and work or home and uh, the soccer field. It's gone now. So uh, in that sense, it's been a little challenging to figure out how to tell a story because just letting your mind wander, you know, I don't get that. I have to like be in the bathroom or in the shower, but you know, that's 15 minutes. Unlike being in LA traffic, which can be an hour, hour and a half. Yeah. 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 So you've had to re well, I mean, pandemic has affected so many writers in so many different ways, but that's definitely the um, imagining time being cut out has affected so many people. Yeah. Um, do you yeah. plot? Do you, you know, when you, uh, you know, talk to your agent, do you have a solid synopsis by the time you're ready to sort of get going on this? Or do you just take those poppy seeds and just say, I'm just going to go and see where this takes me? I am a plotter. Whether they're good plots or not, that's, you know, neither here nor there. But I'm a plotter. Um, I like having that roadmap. Uh before I go to Jill and then Jill will say, well, something, 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 and I'll go back and fix it. Um, but I always have a plan before I start off on a first draft, just because, you know, I am kind of to- uh, pulled in so many different directions. My, um, my job, I'm still working full time and it's like a job job where I have to be in, in- incredibly engaged because I I write for a large medical center out here. And part of my responsibility, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was communicating about the pandemic to our donors and to our patients. So I have to be present, which means when I write my own stuff, I want to have a roadmap of where I'm supposed to go that morning uh, in that session and what have I done (laughs) to get toward... uh, being able to type the end at the end of the story. So yeah, I am very much an outliner. I allow myself to go off, uh, off the map sometimes. Uh, but then, you know, that's fine. I know that I have the map over there, but yeah, no, I, I'm, I am no ways a pantser, not at all. Do you find that it's, I can't imagine how challenging it must have been for the last two years to be writing for a medical center during the time of COVID and just the emotional energy trying to write something that people are going to read and, and, you know, relaying these messages. Do you, in order to switch into your, your creative writing mode, do you 
you know, burn incense or do you like walk outside or do you do something to sort of clear the energy? Cause that's, uh, that's a lot. That's a, yeah, no, it was hard. It was hard. Writing was already, you know, hard anyway. Um, But then one working from home, I, all this time I had been very proud of my ability to separate my, my novel writing life from my work life, my writing work life. And now here they were at the same table on the same computer for a very long time. And fortunately, um, I give myself my the best words. So I get up at 440 to write my wow. own stuff. So that is for me to get myself um, fulfilled and happy. I mean, my, my work life is fulfilling, but yeah. I, I do that more to support my family than anything. Um, so, yeah, I, I get up early to do my own writing. Wow. And then the only way, really, before I got my own my um, my work computer, because they had to give everyone laptops, uh, was pens. I had a set of pens for work and a set of pens for my novel writing. And I would not use one set of pens for the other. That was my separation. Um, and because there was nothing else, all my, my notebooks were in the same place now. Um, I wasn't going anywhere, so I couldn't physically say, this is my work life now. It had to, it was represented by the set of pins I was using. It's gotten a little better now, but I still get up at 440 to write, um, until seven o'clock. Um, and then I turn to, uh, my day job. What what's helped though, um, and this has always helped with having a day job, you know, is that that muscle I've developed in terms of, you know, write a communication to donors and patients about this disease that we know nothing about. I mean, if I can do that, then yeah, I can kind of create the story out of nowhere. I can get up and force myself to write ten pretty bad pages if I need to, because, you know. I don't have that luxury in my day yeah. job. I have to write on yeah. a dime. And so I bring that into my novel life where it's like, I I can do it. I, I will go back and make it better, but I can get something down on yeah. a page and, and do it. And yeah, that's one of the benefits of having a writing job, writing day job is, you know, developing that ability to just get it down and know that you're going to have a moment where you get to, make it better. And do yeah. you do that five days a week? Do you do it seven days? I mean, I can't. Every, every day, day. Every day of the week. Um, when I don't, I miss it and I feel bad. Uh, so even if I don't really feel like it, I will do something. If that's just transcribing um, and putting in edits, because I do everything on copy. I print everything out. I write longhand. My first... Um, first draft, even if it's thoughtless stuff like that, I will do that. I just want to know that I gave it all to this story. Um, I am a person, especially after surviving cancer, Mm -hmm. I don't like having any regrets or no stone left unturned, that whole thing. I want to know that, you know, I tried. And so, you know, and and really, I love writing. I absolutely love novel writing and I wish in some ways that I could do it full time because I really love telling these stories and, um, but you know, I, I, I do as much as I can. 
and I don't see it really as a burden in in, yeah. in some ways. Can I back up for one second? You write your first drafts in longhand? Yes, I do. Wow. <laughs> and for Christmas, oh, the most I got the most exciting Christmas gift. Um, my husband, who we've been married for 26 years, so he's seen my journey from, you know, writing bad first drafts in my little studio apartment in downtown Los Angeles to now. And, you know, he sees my process and just how long things take. And there's this device called the Remarkable, and I'd been looking at it, and it's like, uh, a, basically, it's like a writer's iPad where you can write longhand into this device, and it will convert to text, and you can upload it, and that's that. And he got it for me for Christmas, and for this draft of a novel I'm working on now, you know, when you're writing, there are lots of chunks that you have to supplement where you're like, oh, I need a scene for that. I need a scene for that. And so um, when I got it for Christmas, I started writing those chunks on this remarkable. And it saves me so much time because seeing that I write longhand, you know, I have to type it in. This device takes my writing and makes it into text that I can just drop into my existing manuscript. And so, you know, he knows me so well, and that makes me so happy. It makes me so happy because as much as I love pens and pads, as I get older, yeah, it's taken me a long time. So, um, yeah, yeah I, I like writing because I, it helps me stay connected to the story, especially since, you know, I have that hour and a half every morning to, well, on weekdays to get it down. And so writing helps things stay, you know, stay in your head. But this remarkable device, it's the best of both worlds where I'm writing, doing the act of writing, but then it's chopping down time by converting the, the, my handwritten text into type. And I'm looking forward to writing my whole first next novel into this device to see, you know, how much time I'm cutting down with not having to type, you know, everything in. So, Yeah. <laughs> I'm such a writing nerd. Wow. Well, I'm going to, I need to check that out. You that should. Is, that you know, it's not the cheapest unbelievable. thing, but I think I've used it enough just since December 25th. I think I've already gotten my money's worth. I think I've almost kind of worn down yeah. one of the nibs because, you know, when you're writing novels, it's a lot of words. So, Yeah. Check it out. I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, what's the best piece and the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? And what's the best piece of writing advice you give? The best piece of writing advice came from Walter Mosley, who said, write every day. And he said, write every day. And why I believe in writing every day is that every day you're confronted with uh, some something, either good or bad. And you change as a person. You learn something or you get mad at something. Something happens that uh, changes your perspective, even if it's atomic. And that change uh, somehow finds its way into your writing. And if you miss that, then you miss an opportunity to infuse your writing with something different, something new, wow. something transformative. Um, I think... The worst piece is write every day, which is the same thing, but writing every day. Because um, sometimes life 
won't allow you to do that. Um, as a former sick person, there were times where I couldn't do it and I felt guilty for not doing it. And that's not right. You know, um, there are moments when you can't do it, um, either psychologically or, or just, you just, you just can't. And so what I say to that is if you can't write every day, surround yourself with words for at least, you know, 30 minutes. If that's reading someone else's writing or journaling or taking a walk and thinking about writing, have it be something that, um, addresses that need and that love of, of, of words and for words in your life somehow. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't like when I oh, write every day, but don't do it because don't make it a chore. I, I, as I said before, I, I love this stuff. I love writing when I'm away from it, which is not a lot of time. <laughs> I, I miss it. I, they're only, two moments where I don't write every day. That's Christmas Day. I don't write on Christmas Day. And I don't write when we're actually on vacation. I allow myself to not think about it. I read other people's stuff. I look around so that when I go back to writing, I can, you know, uh, use the description of someone I saw at a cafe. You know, I, I some language that I heard. I'm purely observing when I'm not writing. Um, but yeah, I, I, I love it and I miss it when I can't do it, but I don't feel that it's the end all be all of, of who I am. What wonderful, you know, that was great. Thank you. <laughs> I to tell you between Walter Mosley and the second part, that was, that's oh, great. You. Uh, you know, really wonderful because the joy yeah. you get, from your craft is just so evident in the, oh. in the way you talk about it and the care. And that's, that's the part that, that people need to understand. Yeah. It's hard work to write, but it is a joyful yes, thing to, to do it. Yeah. I mean, it's a blessing to be called. That's it, the word. And it, right? I, I do see it as a blessing. I mean, I can't yeah. add you know, and I'm not good. I can't swim. There are only so many things I'm good at. I'm good at <laughs> writing, and I, and I'm so thankful that that's what the that's what I can do because even in my day job, it's helped. You know, uh, land big gifts for the institutions I've written for. It's helped improve the lives of patients and families like mine. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm blessed that this is my gift, and I see it as that, and. There's so many stories to tell, and I want to get to them. So, yeah. Well, we're glad you're getting to them for sure. Um, so you talked about community a little bit uh, ago, you know, and it, you know, how important it is mm -hmm. and what a great community crime writers are. And hopefully we'll all see each other in 3D at some point. <laughs> um, did you cook into a community early? Like when did when did you, MWA and Sisters in Crime sort of come into your into your life? It was like when um, Land of Shadows first uh, was published. I know, I remember the first time meeting Marjorie Flax um, at Boucher, at one of the Boucher cons uh, and asking if I was interested in joining the board and, you know, just people reaching out to me to be on panels and to, you know, speak and join this and join that. It was immediate. And it was wonderful, uh, even down to 
noir at the bar here in LA, being in a room full of, of LA writers and listening to them read. It was, it was wonderful and so warm and welcoming. And yeah, that's, that's the great thing about our community. When someone joins it and there you are, you're going to get asked to do so much stuff that, you know, I'm at a point now where I have to say, oh, I can't. And it makes me feel bad, but it's like, no, I, I seriously can't. I'm booked all day. And yeah. yeah, usually I say yes to as many things as possible. When I say, when I do say no, it really is a no, you know, it's a warm community and you, you know, people ask you to blurb their books. And again, I say yes to, to as many things that I, that I can. Um, I've had to say no a few times lately because like I'm on deadline and I have a high school senior that I had been getting in college back in starting back in May, so I didn't have the the amount of time needed to to do things like that. But um, you care about so many people's work, and you want them to be found and to get land great deals and to get the deals and to be on the panels and to be honored and all these things. And I I like that we're like that. You know, I like that. Yeah. We care about each other, and we don't see um, one people one person's win as my loss. You know, yeah, we all mm-hmm. want to be nominated for stuff, but I think most of us are at a point where, you know, in some ways, we know that it's a popularity contest, and as nerds, as word nerds, especially, you know, we're kind of used to not winning popularity <laughs> contests because, you know. <laughs> You know, in high school, we probably yeah. weren't, you know, had the prettiest eyes or the best figure or the most athletic, you know, those kind of superlative things. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think we're all supportive when it comes to things like that. So, I, again, I, I, we're unlike other genres where we, when we talk about community, we actually, we actually mean it. And we're actually happy to see each other in 3D. And even on Zoom, we try to make the best of it, yeah. you know? And that's yes. very special. That's a very special thing. Yeah, it really is. It really is. What are you working on now? I am working on um, a story. Uh, it's called What Never Happened. And it's a story about uh, Catalina Island, which is an island, for those who don't know, off the coast of California. It's a part of L.A. County, but it was an, it's an island that uh, for many years was owned by William Wrigley, as in the chewing gum magnet, as in oh. owner of the Chicago Cubs back in the day. And it has an interesting history Um Catalina Island, because it's seen as, you know, this mini paradise off the coast of California, which you get on the ferry and you're there an hour later. But there's, you know, a a, a nearly non-existent Black population on Catalina Island. And a lot of that stemmed from racism. Black people couldn't, weren't allowed to get on the ferry to go over to Catalina Island. So you can't settle somewhere where you're not allowed to get to, you know, to get there. And so I'm telling a story about um, a young black woman whose family did try and settle there, but um, shenanigans happened and her family, uh, a lot of them were killed. And so it's a mystery about who did that. And also what's up with Catalina Island and why aren't there any black people on it? And also what is this, this kind of legacy of, 
you know, race and uh, the native population and all the rest of it. So again, it's about place. It's about community. It's about LA in so many ways and uh, keeping people from enjoying the fullness of their lives. So that is what I'm working on right now. And I'm in the second draft, the the draft where you you got your nasty, ugly first draft, and now you actually have to go back and fill in all the holes and actually write the damn thing. I'm in that right now. And I've always hated this draft. I hate it so much because it's where the hard work lies, where you're doing all the research. And especially when I, you know, I print out what I've written and it's all, it's just a mess. It's a total mess. And this is where I always feel like I'm an imposter. It's like, I can't do this. This is not good. And yeah, you know, everybody works through that and it'll be, it'll be Mm -hmm. great once I get to the fourth draft. Fingers crossed. <laughs> well, it sounds like an exciting premise. Is it single timeline or are you, you doing his, you know, are you present day or are you doing some timeline hopping? It's um, mostly, I would say, 98, 95% present day with, with some flashback. Very, very minimal, but a straight, kind of a straightforward story. Um, I've written the flashback parts and I think I'm going to pepper them throughout. So that'll, I'll figure that out for the next draft. <laughs> it sounds exciting and interesting. And, uh, and you know, again, as your work makes people think and, and yeah. makes us talk and, and gives us a moment where, you know, we're entertained and we're doing this, but it's also like, okay, let's talk about this. Yeah. Which, um, that's a gift that you, you can do. You can entertain and also provoke conversation and that's a that's a wonderful thing i always try to do that (laughs) well thank you so much for being on the podcast thank you again for inviting me this was a a wonderful conversation especially at the beginning of the year when you know again life for me is constantly changing and i'm i'm glad that we had a, a, a chance to to connect and talk about all things books yes Yes. In early in January, yep. all things still feel possible. Uh-huh. So <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.